welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brabach. And I'm excited to say that we are discussing a novel that would be Destination Unknown, one of Christie's mid-career thrillers. I do just want to start out, though, with a little bit of a mea culpa. Marmalade is bitter. I've yeah, totally well, wrong. Hey. We have heard from so many of you about this. I just felt the need to address it up top. I, I was I wrong. Mean, I, I admit defeat. Yeah, I concede. I, I just, concede. You know, I don't always like being in the right because sometimes <laughs> I'm like a little bit of a Cassandra Kemper. But in the case of Marmalade, Marmalade is bitter and I told you so. <laughs> well, I will say this after having recorded that episode and having gotten such a, a vehement pushback from Catherine, which was about to be echoed by approximately a hundred of you. I checked <laughs> out the Marmalade that I use in my refrigerator. I've gotten a little bit of shade thrown at me for using Smucker's brand marmalade. But you know what? I'm going to stand by my Smucker's label. However, it is labeled sweet marmalade. So the marmalade I am used to is specifically the sweet variety. And traditional marmalade is certainly of the bitter variety. And I should not have doubted Agatha Christie because that is a brilliant means of hiding a bitter poison. Should you have doubted me? I shouldn't have doubted either of you. But suffice to say, I really shouldn't have doubted Agatha Christie. That's kind of the thesis of this podcast. You know, here, here is where I will give my mea culpa. I did not know that sweet marmalade existed. Well, you know, we've all, I think, learned something. It's the lessons we don't expect to learn that are the ones sometimes that stay with us the longest. So I think we all have a lot to chew on, (laughs) so to speak. Like some orange rinds? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. With that out of the way, let us begin our discussion of Destination Unknown. Catherine Brobeck, could you tell us a little bit about the publication history of this novel? Yeah, I can. It was first serialized in the UK in September and October of 1954 in John Ball. And then it was published on the 1st of November in 1954 by Collins Crime. And then in the US, um, it was serialized by the Chicago Tribune in early 1955 under the title Destination X. And then published by Dodd Mead the same year under the title So Many Steps to Death, which is such a clunky title. Per Janet Morgan, Christie biographer, Christie's publishers were actually getting worried as to whether or not Christie would have a book for 1954, since, you know, at this point it was firmly established that there had to be a Christie a year. She had to snip off her sausage. A Christie for Christmas? A Christie for Christmas. She was the sausage factory. That's what she (laughs) referred to herself as. She would put out a sausage a year, snip. And then start making the next one. Start filling that next tube. Apparently, part of the reason is that she was distracted by her theatrical pursuits at the time. This is, you know, where she was doing a lot of playwriting and adapting of her own material. But, you know, she did eventually produce this novel. And as Janet Morgan puts it, I'm quoting from her here, the story labeled preposterous nonsense by one American magazine editor was nevertheless a success Mm. within the United States and at home, perhaps because it dealt not only with popular fantasies of conspiracy and escapism, but also with a theme 
the causes and consequences of defection that had obsessed the public since the conviction of Klaus Fuchs, the nuclear scientist in 1950. And we will very much get into Klaus Fuchs as well as another real-life scientist counterpart. These are contemporary references that readers back then 100% would have been thinking about while they were reading the book. And, you know, spoiler alert, this isn't our favorite Christie, but I think it's good to keep in mind that the book did have a contemporary audience who appreciated it. I think that context is helpful. First, we should address the victims, right? Absolutely. Well, this is a spy novel. Yeah, so um, we don't really have a victim, do we? Well, unless you want to say it seems like perhaps the quote-unquote West... Is the victim freedom, is victim? Catherine? Is it freedom? <laughs> <laughs> there is a victim, and it's all of Betterton, and she's the redheaded youngish wife of a nuclear scientist named Thomas Betterton. And while she's not actually murdered, she does die. Perhaps a better way of putting it is that Mrs. Betterton is the true victim of this story. For the same reason that there isn't really a victim per se, there aren't really suspects. This is a thriller novel steeped in the Cold War. So to the extent there is a suspect, it would be the Ruskies, I suppose, the Soviets. But that doesn't really make sense for our, our usual puzzle mystery breakdown. So, you know, we are going to just dive right into the world as it appears to be. And this is one of those novels where our usual breakdown isn't all that helpful. And where I think we're going to play a little bit more fast and loose with our plot summary than we normally do, because you know what, we don't really have any clues here, since there's no puzzle to be solved. There's just a story to be told. And it's got a lot of moving parts. And we don't necessarily have to go over all of them to have an intelligent discussion about what is working in this novel and what is not. So Catherine, what is the world as it appears to be at the beginning of this novel? Olive Butterton, who we have just mentioned, she's a second wife of Thomas Butterton, and he is a renowned physicist, although to be totally honest, he's basically portrayed as generic scientist. He's supposedly doing nuclear work. So the book opens up on the suspicion that this, you know, renowned, somewhat generic Dr. Betterton defected, but that's not clear because they just can't find him. They think maybe that happened because, hey, it's the 50s and when scientists disappear from the West, people think, well, maybe they defected to the other side. And I think this is where it's helpful, actually, to bring up these real life counterparts. And this, I think, is exactly why Thomas Betterton in the book does seem so generic because he's really just a stand-in for several famous cases. And there are two that uh, readers in 1954 and 1955 would have thought of right away. I'm sure there are more than two, but these are two of the most prominent ones. So the first is the one that Janet Morgan mentioned, which is Klaus Fuchs. And he is a physicist who left Nazi Germany to complete his education in the 1930s. But since he was a German and a communist, he was actually sent to an internment camp in Canada during the war. And he was eventually released and subsequently became a British citizen, but he never forgot this treatment being sent to an internment camp. And when a Russian agent approached him, he agreed to pass on secrets to the Soviet Union. And I have the pleasure of turning to Mike Holgate's Agatha Christie's True Crime Inspirations, which is a book that I sometimes get to turn to on this podcast because he has some really entertaining stories about real life counterparts to the fictional stories that Agatha Christie told 
told in some of her novels and short stories. This is what he had to say about Klaus Fuchs. In 1944, Fuchs joined the staff working on atomic energy at Columbia University in New York City. Once a week, he walked to a street corner in downtown Manhattan and handed over reams of handwritten notes detailing the ongoing research to Russian-born immigrant Harry Gold. Transferred to Los Alamos, New Mexico, Fuchs worked on the actual construction of the bomb, and the world learned of the lethal discovery when Hiroshima and Nagasaki were totally destroyed in 1945. When news of the first blast reached Los Alamos, the team engaged on the project decided to celebrate their success that so dramatically brought about the end of the war with Japan. Fuchs volunteered to drive into Santa Fe and buy some liquor and met Harry Gold in a bar where he handed over complete instructions on how to build the bomb and detonate it. To add a little bit to that, that's part of Project Paperclip. Project Paperclip brought over all of these German defectors, basically, to Los Alamos to work on the bomb. I mean, like, the most famous person was Werner von Braun, right? And this was, like, a huge, massive initiative combination of defectors and dissidents and spies and all of that other kind of Cold War stuff. I mean, it's real. Yeah, no, she's drawing on something extremely real. There's another scientist whose real life defection very much follows this pattern of disappearance that we get in the case of Thomas Betterton in the beginning of the novel. This is um, Bruno Pontecorvo, who was an Italian nuclear physicist, and he, similar to Fuchs, left Italy in the 1930s to avoid the fascist regime. He went to Paris and then he went to the U.S., but this is what Mike Holgate writes in his book. He abruptly abandoned his holiday in Rome and, accompanied by his wife and three children, boarded a plane for Stockholm without informing friends or relatives. Fiercer his motives grew when a passenger on the flight revealed that five-year-old Antonio Pontecorvo, so that's his son, had told him that the family were going to Russia. I love the idea (laughs) that this spy's five-year-old son ratted him out. It's like the most dangerous version of kids say the darndest things. Bruno Pontecorvo really did defect to the USSR. Soviet agents helped him enter it from Finland. And then there wasn't confirmation of this until 1955, actually. So this is right around when the book is coming out. Pontecorvo actually held a news conference in Moscow declaring that he had been granted refuge in the Soviet Union and he was involved in nuclear research for for peaceful purposes and that he had left the West because, in his view, it was intent and now he's going to sound very much like some of the characters in this very novel, on, quote, new war using atomic and nuclear weapons as means for achieving world domination. So he felt that the West was too dangerous, and he was going to work with the Soviet Union. I mean, these are just the kinds of things that are happening at the time that this book was published. Well, I mean, the Cambridge spying had already started to be revealed in the early 1950s, too. There was legitimately a spy ring that was starting to be revealed at the sort of higher echelons of British academia and intelligence and scientists, etc., who were working with the Soviets. That's kind of the backdrop of the story that we're given in the in the opening scene of this particularly yeah, of affecting scientist and his wife, who seems to want to go abroad. But everyone's, of course, thinking, hmm, does she want to go abroad to meet up with her defecting scientist husband or does she just merely want to go abroad? They're not sure, but they're going to let her go and kind of keep tabs on her and see what happens. Then we do a major cut <laughs> to a very yeah. different 
and very Christie-ish situation. It's one that we have seen before twice. We have a character, her name is Hillary Craven, and she is beside herself. She is at the pit of despair in her life. Her husband has deserted her um, in the wake of her child dying. She had a young daughter who passed away and her husband has left her for another woman and she is determined to end her own life. And, you know, we saw this in the mysterious Mr. Quinn story, the man from the sea. We also saw this in the Mary Westmacott novel, unfinished portrait, which we covered uh, in one of our Patreon episodes. And, you know, which is of course the man from the sea. Which, yes, has so much overlap with The Man from the Sea. And, you know, it's probably not lost on listeners at this point that this is Christy drawing on her own experience, particularly that period during which Archie was in the process of leaving her for another woman and getting a divorce. And that's when her infamous disappearance happened. It's actually something Laura Thompson makes much of in her wonderful biography of Christy, you know, might have a little bit more to say about that when we're talking about Hillary Craven as a character, because I do think that she's a good character and the story opens in an interesting place with her. And it's something that Christy actually does do well. I think that she draws Hillary's kind of vacant despair very well. She's just a woman who's done and she's about to end it. And she's flying off to Morocco to do so because why not? You know, she kind of wants to go someplace different. And then she's essentially just going to swallow a lot of pills and kill herself. But perhaps fortunately, someone else is observing her and realizing exactly what she's going to do. And that would be Mr. Jessup, who we saw in Mm -hmm. our opening pages. And he's some kind of an MI6 agent. If that's his real name. Yeah, exactly. Mr. Jessup is almost definitely not his real name. Uh, (laughs) No. I like to think he's Colonel Race in disguise. Oh. Right? Oh, I like that. I was, by the way, really hoping that Mr. Jessup and Hillary would end up together at the end of the novel. Little surprise twist. um, Especially if it were Colonel Race. It would have made me much happier than the actual plot of this book, but (laughs) yes, go on. (laughs) But in any case, he's, he's got her number. He's smart. He's a observant and he knows that she does not value her life so he says well funny story if you really don't mind dying really soon i've got a better way that you can commit suicide than taking a bunch of pills in a hotel room and that would be being a super spy sleuth for me and maybe saving the western world in the middle of all of that just as a little right because he's been following her from pharmacy to pharmacy while she picks up sleeping pills yeah he knows that she now has you know enough sleeping pills to easily off herself that's a very christie-ish thing that he's watching her go to all these different pharmacies so that she builds up a stock it's a very fantastical twist on hillary's situation but it works i think there are a lot of pieces of this novel that could make an excellent spy thriller. I don't think they do make an excellent spy thriller. I think she goes sideways. (laughs) You don't say. She goes sideways in a lot of places. But I will say this about Destination Unknown. I think it actually has a pretty fantastic beginning. And I don't mean the beginning with Dr. Betterton and Olive Betterton. I mean this, with Hillary Craven being on the edge of despair and becoming a super spy. No, I think it's really, really good. I think, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but there's like a really wonderful, it's kind of cheesy spy novel 
article that was published in like 1939 called A Coffin for Demetrios by Eric Ambler. And Eric Ambler is like a little bit of a precursor to John le Carre. And like, I love John le Carre. And you know, anybody who knows anything about John le Carre knows that he was a spy. (laughs) But in the Eric Ambler novel, it's a similar setup. It's like an accidental spy versus like le Carre when they're like bureaucrats and Cold War professionals. In the Eric Ambler ones, they're all like accidentally spies. And they are, well, the Eric Ambler books, if anybody is just interested, they're wonderful, but it's like a similar thing. And like at some level also, it's the man with the brown suit, which we adore Mm -hmm. on this podcast. It's a regular Joe tumbling into a story full of action and adventure. Absolutely. Absolutely. This just, it doesn't pan out like that but it doesn't but it has and this is going to be the first buttress of my argument that destination unknown is superior to they came to baghdad destination unknown has a great beginning not so great of a second half they came to baghdad is flipped right it's the inverse of that atrocious beginning almost Mm. impossible to get through and then it gets better in the second half for me a good beginning is so much more important. I was happy getting into this novel. Then it became a slog, but that to me is infinitely more forgivable than having to slog my way from page one until like 100. So Catherine, why exactly is Mr. Jessup proposing that Hillary Craven become a super spy sleuth? Oh, because Olive, remember Olive, all these minutes ago that you've been listening (laughs) to this, Olive, who was in a plane crash, She's in the hospital and she's dying. Her plane to Morocco that she was taking maybe for a vacation, maybe to defect with her husband crashed in Morocco, right? Yes, correct. And she has exactly the same hair color as Hillary. That's the entire reason why they have exactly the same red hair color. A very distinctive red apparently. Yeah. And they're pretty much the same age. So Olive, when she like gets a few last breaths to speak when Hillary goes into the hospital. That is a stock part of the Agatha Christie thriller, right? We have to have our dying person say something cryptic and enigmatic that then requires 150 to 200 pages to be solved. A la, why didn't they ask? Evans. Evans. No, exactly. Also why I mentioned Eric Ambler and a coffin for Demetrios, because that's also exactly the same premise there. Well, and she, um, she pushes it further than she ever has in here, because I'm not even going to say everything that Olive Betterton says on her deathbed, because there's so much of it, but girlfriend is chatty in her final moment. I know. I mean, it's just like, she's like, oh my gosh, did you ever meet that guy, Boris? Because that guy, Boris, you should totally watch out for that guy, Boris. She is name-checking Boris all over the place. She recites a poem. Snow, yeah. snow, beautiful snow. You slip on a lump and over you you go and then she starts repeating a last word go 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 and tell him about boris i didn't believe it i wouldn't believe it but perhaps it's true if so if so a kind of agonized question came into her eyes which stared up into hillary's take care a queer rattle came to her throat her lips jerked olive betterton died (laughs) sure i'm still in i'm still having fun i'm still right there Boris. <laughs> yeah, so we know there's something about Boris. 
who apparently seems to be some sort of other spy. Quick spoiler here, almost everyone we meet in this book will turn out to be a spy. Every single person except Hillary, basically, is a spy. And she's a spy, too. And the story yeah, about well, how she well, becomes right. a spy. <laughs> yeah. You know, Hillary is given a crash course in Olive Betterton and who she is and what her history is. And that's also fun. Christy doesn't belabor the point because Christy doesn't belabor anything. God love her. I'm still super excited. I'm like, oh my God, she's pretending to be this woman and she doesn't even know what's going to happen to her or who's going to reach out to her. And, you know, she's going to use the fact that she was just supposedly in a plane crash that she narrowly escaped as Olive Betterton. When in doubt, she's just going to be like, oh, you know, my head, you know, I don't even know what happened to me because I was just in this plane crash. So she can kind of use that as a ruse. And it's interesting because Hillary is jumping off point in terms of her despair over where her life was. It's like probably one of the most interesting things about this book. So just bear with me while I dwell on that for a second. But Laura Thompson had some really interesting things to say about that. She kind of makes the point that Hillary claiming because she got into a plane crash and she can't remember what happened, that being a legitimate excuse, the idea of basically a fugue state would almost seem to read as Christie excusing herself, i.e., and I'm quoting Laura Thompson here, peddling the official line about her disappearance. But then it's so much more complicated than that, right? Because Hillary is obviously lying when she says that she's been concussed because she was never in a crash at all. But then it gets even more complicated than that because people are talking about how she had this near brush with death as Olive Betterton, But then she actually did have a near brush with death as Hillary because she was going to kill herself and she came very close to doing that. So it's just this really interesting oniony layering of what that state of mind would do to a person and the idea that it really would mess with your head. And it's just fascinating to think about Christy writing this book over a quarter century after all that had happened. I mean, it's interesting. We were just talking about all of that vis-a-vis a pocket full of rye. And, you know, these things were obviously still important to her and present in her mind. And I think you can just see in the way that she's portraying Hillary's confusion and the story upon story and what's real and what's not and the way it gets fuzzy. I think you can just kind of see the confusion of it in Christie's own life and what it did to her after the fact and kind of just what a mess and a morass the whole thing was. It was just very evocative of the disappearance for me in a way that I was not in any way expecting. I thought that was really interesting. You know, the other thing that I would say is that after this was written, LaCare ends up writing The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which, slight spoiler, I guess, I mean, it's one of the most famous spy novels of all time, but it does focus on somebody who seems to sort of go off the deep end into a depression slash fugue state slash alcoholic state, etc., which then gets used both by him and by the government. And that's several years later later than this as always seems to be the case with Christy, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. You know, she didn't invent any of this. She's she's very rarely the inventor of any of these tropes, but she often did it early and before some of the swankier examples, you know? Yeah. So Hillary becomes a spy and where does she go, Catherine? What does she do? Hillary meets up with 
a Miss Hetherington and a Mrs. Calvin Baker, who, by the way, is referred to the entire novel as Mrs. Calvin Baker. It's curious, too, because Christy does that sometimes. Remember Mrs. Dane Calthrop? Mm-hmm. I believe in uh, she's in The Moving Finger and, and perhaps one other Miss Marple that we've covered thus far. Because she doesn't always give the no. husband's first name. Even if she's just saying Mrs. So-and-so, she more often than not will just say Mrs. and then the last name. I mean, it's obviously still the husband's last name, but it just seems extra possessive to name a woman by the husband's first and last name. I don't know if there is maybe even like a convention for why you would do that in certain situations or with certain names or something. If anyone has any any intel on that, I'd be really curious. Yeah, anyway, they meet in a hotel in Morocco and she also meets Mr. Aristides, who is a very rich older man. He's also described repeatedly as having yellowed skin, which is interesting. Yeah. (laughs) John does, I guess. But now she's also fronting as Olive Betterton. And then she decides to go on to Fez, where Miss Hetherington and Mrs. Baker show up yet again. Surprise. And... (laughs) On an excursion in Fez, Hillary allows herself to be whisked away for, you know, beautiful mint tea in Morocco. And then when she is in the toilet, she finds to her consternation she's locked in, only to discover a second doorway, which leads her to a super secret spy meeting in which she is at long last being addressed by the apparent bad guys who still think that she is Mrs. Betterton. So this would be Monsieur Laurier, right? Uh, correct. A French spy. Ooh la la. She keeps her head about her because mm, she does have a good does. head on her shoulders. And she's told to keep her reservation for Marrakesh the next day. And she does keep that reservation. And there's some chatter from Mrs. Calvin Baker and Miss Hetherington as to whether or not they're going to accompany her. And Mrs. Baker decides to go. So Hillary and Mrs. Baker go on a plane on which there are four other passengers. So six total. And one of them is this handsome guy named Andrew Peters. He goes by Andy. And a Norwegian named Erickson. Then we have a Frenchman and a woman who is dressed as a nun, of course, since, you know, you got to have a nun in a Christie novel. So long as the nun turns out to be not at all a nun or to lead to something extremely unnun-like. On that note, naturally, since we're in an Agatha Christie thriller here, it turns out that the plane makes an unscheduled landing and is subsequently burnt to a crisp with six dead bodies wheeled in to substitute for all six of the passengers. Of course. Like, let's just be clear. This is two plane crashes in the first half of a novel. Although, to be fair, the second one is faked. Let me just repeat that. Six corpses are wheeled in and burnt to char along with the plane to, you know, substitute as these six people so that they can be presumed dead. So it turns out that Mrs. Baker is the handler or liaison officer, as she puts it, for this charming little group. And these five passengers are headed to wherever Olive Betterton was supposed to go to meet up with Dr. Betterton, wherever exactly it is that he was going. So 
who are these five passengers? Well, Andy Peters is Andy Peters. Uh, he turns out to be a research chemist. That nun is no nun. Kel Surprise, but an extremely unpleasant endocrinologist named Helga Needheim, Fräulein Needheim. Uh, Mr. Erickson is a brilliant physicist. That's how he's described in the book as a, quote, brilliant young physicist, which led me to ask the question, are there ever any stupid physicists? I mean, I'm sure there are, actually, but yeah, I think they're few and No, there probably are. And then the Frenchman is a Dr. Barron, who is a bacteriologist. So, you know, Hillary is kind of feeling them all out here. And she notes that their political persuasions are all over the place. Fräulein Needheim is just a fascist. She's she's just awful. She's just a mm-hmm. horrible, horrible person who doesn't care about humanity. Some of them seem to be more communists. Others of them are really just interested in doing scientific research and don't really seem to want to be bothered by governmental interference whatsoever. It's not exactly the communist hotbed that she had been expecting, given that the rumor was that Dr. Betterton had defected to the USSR. So it's all a bit intriguing. I'm still doing okay with this book. At Are this point. you? I am. Believe it or not, I really am. I'm getting okay. worried, but I'm still because doing okay. Here's the thing that I'm going to tell you is that after we already know all of this, they end up going to a secret mountain villain's lair in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco after like being brought back and forth. Well, it's like and, cars uh, and planes and all sorts of motorcycles. Yeah, of but they're, but they're they're still in Morocco though. Like, still, it, I know it's like they went like five miles. <laughs> Not really, but <laughs> legitimately, they're still in Morocco. Anyway, it's like a James Bond villain hangout, or in the worst case scenario that I'm about to mention, Kemper, it's the Big Four. <laughs> It has a whiff of the big four, which was also a supervillain lair built into a mountain. Yeah, but this is my favorite thing about this entire book, Kemper. When they show up there, Hillary is horrified because they seem to have brought them to a leper colony. <laughs> yeah. At the entrance to this secret lair, which again, let's be clear, is built into and under seemingly the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. Mm, correct. And as a secret nuclear physicist facility. Yeah, well, just all sorts of, you know, nuclear physicists and other generic super smart scientists milling about. Right. I mean, they could be doing like, yeah, who knows? They could be playing Minesweeper for all we know, but they're they're busy with something or making themselves look busy in any case. But yes, surrounding this super secret lair, or at least at the entrance to it, is a leper colony. It's supposed to be the sort of quote unquote ultimate camouflage or and really, I mean, this is where it gets potentially a little offensive, like the ultimate repellent, right? Because this place isn't entirely secret, right? Like there's a part of it that the world very much knows about that is, you know, a medical research facility that is supposed to be dedicated to curing leprosy. Presumably, it's just such a big undertaking to build a secret lair in and under a mountain that they had to make part of it public or at least public facing. And this was their way of having an excuse for being there, but keeping people from looking too closely because they knew that people would be curious about the whole curing leprosy thing and think it was such a wonderful thing, but also not really want to spend a lot of time there. 
So uh, that is the ploy that they use. I'd like to remind our listeners that despite what you might be hearing, this is still an Agatha Christie novel. <laughs> okay, here's the thing, Catherine. So that was not my favorite part of the ridiculousness of the situation. <laughs> the the leper my, colony? No, not, the leper colony is not my favorite part. Here's by far my favorite part. So this place is called The Unit. And it's not just a research facility. It is essentially an underground paradise. And it's not all underground either. It's not like they have to live underground all the time. Like there are open air gardens that have been built and they have all of the amenities that a person could want because they basically want all these scientists to be happy and productive and lead fulfilled lives and for their spouses, such as Olive Betterton, to come and stay with them and live there forever and perhaps even have children. So there's all the research sciencey stuff going on. But then there's a whole lot of other stuff. And I'm quoting here from Christy. There's a fashion model department and all accessories, cosmetics, everything, all first class. The unit is quite self-contained. All you want on the premises. No need to go outside ever again. And she even meets with a clothes designer. Who oh, Hillary Hillary gets like a good dress and she like picks out all the fabric and stuff. Yeah, no, it's absurd, but in such a funny way. What it reminded me of was the very cult sci-fi kind of psycho-thriller political allegory TV series that aired in the 60s and how, because I can't think of a more 60s program than this, The Prisoner. Where am I? In the village. What do you want? Information. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. (laughs) I will imagine that some listeners are familiar with this. If you're not, just do yourself a favor and watch this thing. It is only 17 episodes long. True story. This show helped get me through law school. That and Diet Coke, actually. It's the actor Patrick McGowan, who had already built up a career playing a spy in another series. And the leaping off point, which you get over the credits in every single episode, is that he quits his job as a top level spy in the UK. And as he is packing to leave, like to kind of make an escape because he's sort of disgusted with his job, he gets gassed in his apartment and he wakes up in, quote unquote, the village which is billed as this ideal utopian place to live. But obviously it's a nightmare since you can't leave. It's like when people try to leave, these big balloons come up and they'll smother you (laughs) unless you back away from them. The the show is so goofily and ridiculously 60s, but it gets into all this sort of paranoia business. And there are just a lot of parallels with what Christie was doing here. I mean, there's a deputy director at the unit in Destination Unknown who kind of gives all these sort of Hitlerian speeches, right? Where he rouses everyone up and says, you know, we are the wave of the future and the young people, all the scientists here are under 45 years old and we're all going to rise up and take over the world. And he kind of whips everyone up into a frenzy. And the there's this whole mystery running through the second half of the book. Well, who is the director? Who is number one? And then the prisoner, I won't spoil it, but you do find out who number one is at the end. Same thing here with the director, because we will find out who the director is, won't we, Catherine? Yeah, I mean, I would also say it's Carla in Le Carre. That's the primary antagonist of all of those George Smiley books is who is Carla, 
which is an acronym, you know, at some level. And so, again, Christy sort of predicting some of those other elements, right? And also drawing on what she had done before, too. I mean, this is a Christie thriller, so there has to be a shadowy person who goes by some sort of a title and has to be unmasked at the end, right? Mr. Brown, the Marquis, Mr. X. We've seen this many a time before, and it's going to happen again. But we should note what happens here when Hillary rises of the unit, because I am going to continue with my claim that I was still with this book, Catherine, even when they got to the unit, even... As they passed through the leper colony, because this is also a really potentially good moment in a spy thriller story. Hillary now has to meet her quote unquote husband because the whole point is that Olive Betterton uh. was going to meet up with her husband. And now it's like, OK, you got here, Hillary. Now what are you going to do? The hope had been Mr. Jessup did talk to her about this. And he said, well, our hope is that we'll be close by so that if you really do get to that point where you're confronting Dr. Betterton face to face, we can essentially come in and rescue you. But uh, that ain't happening in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco in the middle of the desert. I was kind of biting my nails like what's going to happen when she is confronted with him. And it's kind of cool because he greets her as his wife. Yeah. We have that great moment where she's confronted with him and he basically says, Olive. Again, like that's a great thriller moment. You're like, what? what? What's going on here? I thought you were part of the bad guys. And, you know, he basically whispers in her ear, don't say anything. They're listening. Yeah. Which is great. I'm, I'm still in. And, you know, they kind of have to go through a full day of pretending until they finally get to this like open air courtyard on the roof, right? Where there are these beautiful gardens. And again, it's this lush, beautiful. Oh, it's like after a beautiful dinner, right? Yeah, like, it's this like artificial setting. And that's where the prisoner yeah. is so great with that, too, because it's also creepy how idyllic the village actually is. And even though it's a little goofy, Christy does occasionally pull off the same kind of creepiness with the right, unit, yeah. especially here. And then he turns to her and he says, OK, now tell me, who the hell are you? That's a great moment, too. And that is the moment at which the book falls apart right after that. Because it all just gets very silly and also very passive for Hillary. Because Hillary essentially does not do much after that moment. But up until then, that is a, for me, a solid Christie thriller. And certainly one that is leagues better than they came to Baghdad. I'm just saying. I will say that that entire sequence is pretty good. Because also, you really, during that entire thing, think that Thomas is a good guy, right? What what becomes very obvious is that he was weak, right? And his weakness was part of why he allowed himself to be pulled into this whole nonsense with the unit, which these people all, some of them thought that they were truly defecting to something Soviet-ish, at least. But they're certainly doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. One of my big problems is none of them actually seem to be defecting. It doesn't actually seem like they're going to the Soviets. It seems like they're doing some wishy-washy thing. Well, they're getting together and pooling their minds for some sort of, we're unhappy with the status quo and we're going to create a new heaven and earth. And this is the fundamental flaw in Christie's politically minded thrillers. And we've been talking about this since One Two Buckle My Shoe. And that's where that phrase comes from in One Two Buckle My Shoe. Fast forward if you haven't read that novel, but um, there's this underlying political conspiracy in One Two Buckle My Shoe to create a new heaven and earth, just tear everything down and build something new. 
And I have to say, it was really unexpectedly poignant reading something like Destination Unknown, which is built on this hazy idea that tearing down the status quo is obviously a bad thing. Like, there's no question that we're supposed to be siding with Hillary when she's thinking all these people want to do is tear everything down. And I prefer people who are happy living in the muddle and living with messiness and who essentially just want to keep on keeping on and doing the same thing. Uh, That is certainly not the moment we're living through right now. I think it was easy for me to see the fallacy or just the laziness in what Christie well, Christie's supposed yeah, you know villain plot a, here. Yeah, but there's a laziness on Hillary's side and there's a laziness on the people who dug out the villain lair in the Atlas Mountains. There's a laziness ideologically on both sides. Oh, of course. No, I mean, it, yeah, because it's not like their disruption of the status quo has any sort of clear through line no, or it's just, it's purpose. so muddled. It, I don't know that. that and that's, understand. The fun, that's the fundamental problem. You know, these Christie thrillers that hinge on political conspiracies are so vague as to the political conspiracy. You can feel her disinterest in the politics lying yeah, underneath there's it. None. If you want to have a conservative political character in your novel, go for it, but then make them that. Yeah, she's not engaging on either side. That is very clear here. And I think when we reach the second half of the novel, that lack of engagement becomes extremely problematic because we're told that this deputy director whips everyone up into a frenzy with his grandiose plans. But what exactly are those plans? And, and what are you all doing? And what, what do you all supposedly believe in? And when Hillary's talking about how scary this fervor and zeal is, we don't feel it. It certainly doesn't leap off the page. It's never given any specificity. Maybe she just should have gone with a standard commie plot and said, yeah, they are communists. It is a nice twist because everyone's expecting that Dr. Betterton is going to end up in the USSR. And this is part of why it's so hard to find her and trace her, right? And things seem so dire for her when she's stuck in the unit because it is weird that this place is in Africa. Everyone expects it to be in Russia or, you know, the Eastern Europe or something, you know, somewhere behind the Iron Curtain. But it's not. And that's cool. But because there's that diffuseness of politics and even just overall aim, the unit doesn't quite sell itself. Who knows what they're doing and who cares? Right. This is the point of the novel where after Dr. Betterton says, who are you? Hillary explains, and then they have to live as man and wife. They do at least have separate twin beds in their bedroom, but it's established very early on that there is going to be no hanky-panky. How 1950s sitcom is that? I know. I thought it was a good passage of writing when Hillary is talking about what it's like pretending to be man and wife with Thomas Betterton. Uh, This is what Christy writes. Here she was sharing a bedroom with a strange man, and yet so strong was the feeling of uncertainty and danger that to neither of them did the intimacy appear embarrassing. It was like, she thought, climbing a Swiss mountain where you share a hut in close proximity with guides and other climbers as a matter of course. I like that analogy. And at this point, Hillary is essentially just trapped in the unit and has to wait for someone to find her and get her out. At this point, we are at least 100 pages, I think, until the end, right? Yeah. No, I mean, we have a while. We should just go through quickly how she is found. I mean, Hillary wasn't completely passive. It turns out that she was leaving little clues 
as to where she was when they were going in planes and cars and whatnot, crisscrossing through the Moroccan desert and various little villages. There was mention made of this pearl necklace that falls apart and she sort of has to pick up all the pearls and she's been dropping them as Hansel and Gretel Gretel breadcrumbs throughout. Fast forward a little if you haven't read A Murder is Announced, but we should all have some healthy skepticism about the breaking of pearl necklaces after that novel. We should also be attuned to the perils of dropping pearls on travels abroad after the Parker Pine short story, The Pearl of Price. But we also find out that there are some other breadcrumbs, like a phosphorescent handprint as well, which doesn't seem to be coming from Hillary, which are also used to help track them eventually to the Atlas Mountains where the unit is. That's a little bit of a mystery that is yet to be solved. But before we solve that mystery, we should get to the ultimate reveal as to who the director is, because Hillary is brought to the director himself. This is where we are now turning to the world as it actually is, because the whole notion that the unit is some sort of grand master plan for scientists to buck the capitalist system and create some sort of a better or at least different world, that is actually all a facade. And I will give Christy this that I appreciate at least. What is more often than not the underlying motive in an Agatha Christie mystery? Money. It's funny. And when Hillary is brought in to see the director, who is it? None other than the yellow, weasoned little Mr. Aristides. Here is where I am just going to go out on a limb here and say that Mr. Aristides is in fact Aristide Leonides from Crooked House. Oh. I'm oh, pretty sure really it's the same character. Couldn't you see Aristide Leonides being this person and doing exactly this sort of a thing for monetary gain? Other than for the fact that we would need for there to be a time warp since Christie sets her books contemporaneously, I at least think that the character is very much inspired by Aristide Leonides in the same vein. And we know that she does that. She has certain character types she likes to repeat. Yeah, that or so well. she just was really not super cool about Greek people. That too. There might be a little bit of xenophobia going on here in that they yeah. are both Greek. But yeah, so Mr. Aristides is a capitalist. He wants to make money and he's pretending that the unit, you know, has these higher political aspirations merely so that he can gather together all of these high level scientists. And when they are needed by various governments, no matter what type of government they might happen to be, he's going to make those governments pay before he gives it back. He's mercenary. And like at some level, the interesting thing about UNIT is that it has some semblance to modern like Silicon Valley. (laughs) No, it does. I mean, the idea that money is behind everything is certainly not a foolish one. Well, no, and that you're going to, you're going to hire as much talent as you can. You are going to house them together. You're going to combine their talents You will treat them lavishly with paid-for food and clothing. And then you will give the work that they do to, you know, the highest bidder. That is what Silicon Valley is. Here's the thing, though. I think it would be great if Christy left it at that and that Mr. Aristides was hoodwinking the scientists, right? And like the idea that scientists are just people and they could be hoodwinked and they're greedy, too. And so they can certainly be bought. However, 
Mr. Aristides' cynical plot relies on a very specific trick that he is playing, and now I'm quoting here from Christie. By various operations of grafting and delicate manipulation of the brain, they are arriving gradually at a state where docility can be assured and the will can be controlled without necessarily affecting mental brilliance, i.e. they're being brainwashed? Oh, Agatha. really not good. (laughs) Like, how do you weaken someone's mind and then it's like, oh, but they're still super smart. You don't need this, Agatha. No, just no. Just, scientists just are people. Say, yeah, they're people and they're greedy and they are going to go work for an evil corporation like Facebook. Well, here's where things go from bad to worse, because yeah. ultimately <laughs> Mr. Jessup and the good guys do figure out where the unit is. And we have this climactic scene where, you know, from time to time, there are official delegations of high powered people who come to see the public facing part of the unit, which is, you know, supposed to be devoted to curing leprosy and a few other research initiatives, which is the cover that they give out to the world for their presence here in this place. And we, you know, we have one of these meetings here with lots of dignitaries and high governmental functionaries. And there is an African man who who is serving at the meeting. This is Christy again, so never underestimate the help. That is true, but this goes in, in an unfortunate direction because this seemingly African man turns out to be Andy Peters, that research chemist. And Andy Peters is in blackface. I'm going to quote here from Christy. What caused the entire company to gaze at him in speechless astonishment was the fact that from his full rather negroid lips, a voice of purely transatlantic origin was proceeding. Oh, no. And then a little bit later, because there's an American ambassador in this meeting, and the ambassador looks at Andy Peters, and um, this is what Christy writes. The ambassador looked searchingly at the dignified African figure, and then he began to laugh. I wouldn't say I'd recognize you even now, he said. And Peters responds, that's the injection of paraffin in the lips, sir, to say nothing of black pigment. I mean... What's happening here is that Andy Peters has infiltrated the meeting, which means that he is then able to tell all of these dignitaries and high-level government officials what is actually happening here. And the cover is blown, and Mr. Aristides is sitting in this meeting. Mr. Aristides himself is there. He just pretends to know nothing about it. He says, I cannot believe that this is going on. Of course, we are going to dismantle this whole thing. And we know that Mr. Aristides is going to be fine. He's no fool. But the unit is shut down. And Hillary is able to escape and to be united with Andy Peters, who apparently she fell in love with off page. It's the most bewildering thing about the entire book. (laughs) Like, when did that happen? I know it's really bad. And like I said, there was more of a setup for Mr. Jessup to fall in love with Hillary than there was for Andy Peters. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. Oh, and also Andy Peters is that very much aforementioned Boris. That's right. He is Boris Andrei Pavlov Glider, originally from Poland, but sent to America to complete his education. So that loose end is tied up, but we still have one more major surprise. So here's the thing. By the end of this book, we're getting to the final pages and I'm like, oh my God, is this the first Agatha Christie not to feature a murder? Because even in They Came to Baghdad, we had murders, even though we never figured out who specifically murdered those people because it didn't matter. We at least had murders, right? But Olive Betterton died by accident. You know, she died in a plane crash. Yeah. And no one else was murdered. However, Dr. Betterton 
is being led away. And at first we think that it has to do with the fact that he, oh, you know, gave away state secrets. We have been told that Dr. Betterton had sold the secret of ZE fission. That was his invention, supposedly, as a nuclear physicist or whatever (laughs) kind of scientist he is. So he is now potentially going to be tried for treason. But no, that is not why he is actually being led away in handcuffs at the end of the story. It turns out that the first Mrs. Betterton, who had been referenced, Olive Betterton is his second wife. The first Mrs. Betterton was actually the real nuclear physicist of the pair. She was the one who came up with ZE fission, which is the reason why, you know, Dr. Betterton, when he's in the unit, he, his work is kind of garbage and mediocre. And he claims, oh, it's because I can't concentrate and this place isn't what I thought it was. And I feel trapped. I can't do my work. And no, the reason he can't do his work is that he stole his brilliant first wife's ideas and then murdered her and claimed them for his own. And the reason we know this for sure is that Andy Peters, a.k.a. Boris the Spy, is, oh yes, also the cousin of Dr. Betterton's brilliant first wife. Sure. Yep. So you know what? <laughs> we have our murder in an Agatha Christie novel at the last gasp, and I'm um, so excited. And on that lovely note, we are finished with Destination Unknown. Ah! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't touch that dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christie fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming Right. Before we get into our rankings, this is where usually I would say we are going to discuss the adaptations that we have for this novel. However, Destination Unknown has the dubious distinction of now officially being one of only three Agatha Christie novels that has no adaptation whatsoever. People often erroneously include They Came to Baghdad within this category, but as we well know, there was an hour-long television adaptation of They Came to Baghdad from the 50s. There is nothing in existence for Destination Unknown or Passenger to Frankfurt. Lucky us, it's coming up. That later distant cousin to They Came to Baghdad and Destination Unknown is is a coming. Um, no. And also Postern of Fate. Yep. <laughs> no, Those are the big no. three. <laughs> no. However, Catherine, I hope you didn't think that our good friend Mark Aldridge wouldn't have some fascinating tidbits to share with us about adaptations that almost were but never yeah, came to I be. mean I like the idea that anybody thought that this would be a good idea to adapt Okay, so when Warner Brothers licensed a bunch of Christie titles in 1979, the five that were listed at the time of the announcement were Murder is Easy, The Man in the Brown Suit, 
They Came to Baghdad, Destination Unknown, and The Secret of Chimneys. Wow. That is quite a collection of titles. (laughs) My question is, do you think anybody at Warner's read them? Read them. Yes. (laughs) Well, again, we know that this is when the Christie estate were really only licensing non-Poirot, non-Marple titles so they didn't have many to choose from but those are the five that they announced we'd also know that the the, the first two are the only ones that ended up getting made so that would be murder is easy starring melanie wilkes and the man in the brown suit starring blanche Devereaux. some real iconic queens there well i was going to say with that track record you know we very well could have gotten a destination unknown starring like lucille ball as mrs calvin baker or something (laughs) i i don't don't, i'm just dreaming big here (laughs) Betty Davis? We do have, of course, Betty Davis in um, They Do It With Mirrors. But yeah, there could have been a Betty Davis. We'll always wonder what could have been. So that was the first one. And then there was this company called Corian that bought a controlling share in Agatha Christie Limited, which is the family estates company. Um, So they bought a controlling share in 1998. And at that point, Corian wanted to make its mark on the estate with a new direction in terms of adaptations. Specifically, they thought they'd try their hand at modernizing Christie by bringing her stories into the present day, or at least a different time period from when they were originally set. We've discussed a couple of these. They honestly range on the spectrum from middling to disastrous. For example, the David Williams, Jessica Rain, Tommy and Tuppence series, which included The Secret Adversary and NRM. We were not huge fans of that one. But I have to say, on the grand scale of things, those are not horrifying. They're not horrifying. No, they w- I would put them on middling. They, they're yes. they on the, the middling end of the spectrum. Yeah. On the disastrous end would be the Alfred Molina Murder on the <laughs> Orient Express. The less said about which, the better. We certainly had a lot to say. This was when we also got our present day sparkling cyanide set in in the world of footballers and their wags, which, you know, was also not disastrous, but certainly not one of the more sparkling adaptations, title notwithstanding. Mm. And then apparently there was even a plan for a Witness for the Prosecution adaptation written by David E. Kelly that was meant to star Michelle Pfeiffer who happens to be David Kelly's wife. That never came to be. But also, By the way, Kumar, I would have loved that. Right? That would have been fantastic. David E. Kelly, Michelle Pfeiffer, come on. Oh my gosh, I would have been so down for that. But per Mark, and again, to be clear, all of this is coming from Mark. There was also a plan to bring Destination Unknown to the screen at that time, also in the present day. The initial script was written in 2002, and it, quote, opens with the character of Hillary Craven walking along a busy Virginian road in a dressing gown, clearly having some sort of breakdown before we cut to her in Washington, D.C. four months later after she has been recruited into a task force to help fight an international menace. I don't know. Maybe it could have been fun. I can kind of see like a scandal type situation here. Meaning scandal as in the Kerry Washington yes. rhyme show? Mm-hmm. Where it's like pulpy. I can kind of see that. I'm going to make a prediction now. There are, as I said, only three Christie titles that have yet to be adapted. The other two don't make sense. Maybe that's not true, but my memory of Passenger to Frankfurt and Postern to Fate is that they literally don't make sense as books. So I think those two are extremely tricky to adapt. Destination Unknown makes sense. And I would argue, as I have been uh, over the course of this episode, it has the building blocks of a fun, pulpy, poppy thriller that is very much from Hillary's point of view in 
which she does not become as passive as she does in the second half of the story, which I think is easily fixed. I think that Destination Unknown is going to be adapted and adapted soon. And I think there's a good chance it may be adapted well. I think it's inevitable. Yeah, that's why I mentioned the thing about Scandal. It does make sense in that way. It just is not a good book. Well, that is a perfect segue into our rankings. I'm happy to report, Catherine, that our good friend John Curran agrees with you, because here's what he has to say. After four very traditional whodunits in the previous two years, Mrs. McGitty's dead, they do it with mirrors, a pocket full of rye, after the funeral, Destination Unknown is a disappointment. Despite a promising opening, the novel ambles along to a destination that is more unbelievable than unknown, with little evidence of the author's usual ingenuity. The denouement of They Came to Baghdad unmasked an unexpected, if somewhat illogical, villain, but there are no surprises at the climax of Destination Unknown. It is undoubtedly the weakest book of the 1950s. So John Curran agrees with you, Catherine, that Destination Unknown is just abominable, and specifically that it is worse than they came to Baghdad. I yeah, and I mean I I'm really on board with that. I stand by the fact that I prefer Destination Unknown to the King well, of Baghdad. No, and I, I think but I no, no 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 no. You prefer the possibilities of Destination Unknown. The reading experience of Destination Unknown was 10 to 20 times better. If only for this podcast, I would not have gotten through They Came to Baghdad. I had to will myself through that book. This book was a breeze. Here's what I'll say. It was good, but it was a breeze. Here's a point that I'm going to make. The writing in this, and I hate to say this because I love Agatha. So, like, I hate to be critical just in general, but we've read so many. And the writing in this is not very good. And that's a commentary on the micro writing uh, in the book. And I think that's true. But I also think that the writing on a micro scale was just as bad. And they came to Baghdad. The pacing was also absolutely awful. Whereas in this book, the pacing in the first half of the book, really the first two thirds of the book. (laughs) Although they came to Baghdad does have that entire stretch where she like runs into the desert and has to hide. Well, and that's when it gets better. I think there's one thing we can agree on, which is that it does make sense to compare these two books, because to me, they do feel like two sides of the same coin. It might be kind of a corroded coin, meaning that they're both Christie mid-career thrillers. They both have this kind of underlying, vague, fuzzy, not very satisfying political conspiracy running underneath them. And they both also feature, quote unquote, exotic locales, right? We're obviously in and around Baghdad and Iraq and they came to Baghdad and we're in and around Morocco here. So there's a lot of similarities and actually Curran also does make the point, I'm quoting again here from him, much of the sketching of they came to Baghdad features a character named Hillary slash Olive. And it would seem that to begin with the ideas that were to be included in one novel eventually generated two. So there's a reason why I think the books share a lot of the same. And also they're like kind of like she was doing something else. And so she needs to like pump out something. And so she put out a rando spy novel set in an exotic location, right? Right. The Christie for Christmas wasn't ready. So she was like, oh, I have the leftovers from the first random thriller I did this decade. So let me just whip this one up. And here you go. And then it sold like a billion copies. (laughs) Right. No, of course. Do we know, did she ever actually go to 
the Atlas Mountains. I don't know that. I don't know that either. I mean, it seems to be such a, a remote. There's there's a very little detail in this book. No, it's so true. I don't think that setting and tone deserves to be all that high, since I agree with you that even though this book is a lot more readable, it's not like I would say this is an example of, you know, one of Christie's better written books. It's not. And whereas in They Came to Baghdad, that was one of the few positive things that I think we were able to say about that book. There was a great deal of specificity as to setting. Yeah. She had been there a lot and you could right. tell. And, no, and it, fe- it feels like it. Mm-hmm. And in this book, there's nothing. I mean, I could not tell you what city they were in or why. Well, I disagree with that. And I have a passage to back it up with. And so I'm going to read it out because I do want to give credit where it's due. This is when Hillary is wandering through Fez. It was like stepping into another world. All about her were the walls of old Fez, narrow winding streets, high walls, and occasionally through a doorway, a glimpse of an interior or a courtyard. And moving all around her were laden donkeys, men with their burdens, boys, women veiled and unveiled, the whole busy secret life of this Moorish city. Wandering through the narrow streets, she forgot everything else, her mission, the past tragedy of her life, even herself. She was all eyes and ears, living and walking in a dream world. I can imagine that that is what it was like for Christy when she went on her first trip to the Middle East, which was entirely in the wake of her disappearance and the whole debacle with Archie. That to me feels specific and real, but there's not a lot of it. No. And also I still don't think that that is specific at all to the plot. Oh, well it's not specific to the plot and they came to Baghdad either. It's more specific than that. How? I don't want to defend that book, but this is just like, it's so vague. It's like, Basically, she's like, yeah, there's like a bazaar in the donkeys. <laughs> For the most part, it is. I think that that passage is good, but there's not a lot of it. So let's run through this. We gave a three and a three to plot mechanics and plot credibility to They Came to Baghdad. I would actually like to give this a three and a two. This is not an impressively plotted book, just as They Came to Baghdad was not an impressively plotted book. So I would give it the same score there. And I think that there is so much ludicrousness in the second half of this book, that credibility is just particularly shot here, well, which is why know, I would go I'm, I'm, so I'm sorry, Kemper. Are you not aware of the Reddit threads on the Illuminati? <laughs> Are you okay with a three and a two, Catherine? I think that's kind. <laughs> All right. So three and a two there. Okay, here's where I actually do think this book deserves to do slightly better, truly, than they came to Baghdad. Only slightly. And that is in terms of the characters. Because I think when you're comparing Hillary Craven to Victoria Jones, there's no question that Hillary is a superior character. Really, Victoria is one of my least favorite Christie characters ever created. And I think Hillary is is really interesting and also, especially in those early pages, very well drawn. Is anyone else all that well drawn? I would argue that Dr. Betterton, especially in terms of his interactions with her. He's very handsome. Well, because he's gotten plastic surgery. We didn't even mention that. Yeah. Oh, boy. Again, two plot credibility. I think it deserves a tick better. We actually gave a five to characters and they came to Baghdad. I would give the characters here a six. I understand your point on Victoria. I just really don't like this book. If you really want to give it a six on characters, I mean... What is your feeling on setting and tone? Bad. Here's what we gave that came to Baghdad, a six. 
I mean, I'd go below that on this. If you are willing to do the sixes on characters, I would do a five on setting and tone. Okay. Okay. So then on the Stuck in His Time, it's that moment at the end with Andy Peters masquerading as an African servant, which is just awful because it's a climactic moment and it's meant to sing. You know, it's meant to be funny. It's meant to be surprising. It's a climax and it's horrifying. Textbook example of what we talk about in terms of... Well, no, of course. And also, it's a book that is set in Morocco. Like, who are the local characters in this? But I mean, that's, I mean, and then Christy... also, well, no, 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 but I, but get, then also you got Mr. Aristide who is described as yellow skinned repeatedly, which is not cool. You know, Christy, even when she sets her books in locations abroad, tends to populate them solely with white people, right? Well, I mean, it's, but you know, that's, that's her, that's her known experience. And like, honestly, that is fine. It's not fine when you are going to then other, a bunch of characters. Yeah, no. And feature one of your white characters masquerading as an indigenous inhabitant of the place where your book is set. So where do you come down on Stuck in Its Time? Like at three? Yeah, I was thinking two or three. I think this has come up before. We do approach the Stuck in Its Time category with the humility of realizing we are stuck in our time too. And I think it's difficult to tackle this book and not feel deeply uncomfortable with that moment, that climactic moment at the end of the book, and for it not to like really resonate given everything that's happening right now in our world and our time. So I think a three is high, but I think it's warranted. All right. So we are at the point of our grand tally for Destination Unknown. We have three plus two plus six plus six plus five minus three for a grand total of 19 points, putting Destination Unknown in third to last place. The only two novels that are below Destination Unknown are The Big Four and The Secret of Chimneys, which are both at 16 points. At 20 points, we have The Seven Dials Mystery and Death Comes as the End. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be pushing hard for Destination Unknown to rise a little in those rankings. I don't think it deserves to be quite that low. You know, right now... We have Destination Unknown in 44th place of 46 novels, and They Came to Baghdad is in 40th place. I think it's more about They Came to Baghdad being ranked a little high than Destination Unknown being ranked too low. Hmm. We can discuss that in our annual discussion of the rankings, can't we? We can. So we're doing, is it Hickory Dickory... Doc is the next novel. Indeed. Our next novel is Hickory Dickory Doc. We have two Poirot novels back to back. I regret to tell you this, Catherine. This is going to bring a tear to your eye. This is the last time within the of that we will have two Poirot novels. Oh, we are so far away from that glut of 30s Poirot novels. There were even a whole you know, I mean, cluster of them in the 40s. They're getting sparse. Can I also just say, Good Housekeeping published a list of the best Christie novels. You know what they did not add, Kemper? Which title, Catherine? I'm all a quiver. Five Little Pigs. <gasps> they posted their top ten Christie titles? Yeah, that you should read. What were they? 
Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile, Body in the Library, which you will appreciate. Mm. And then there were none. The Mysterious Affair at Styles, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, The Murder at the Vicarage, The ABC Murders. And I guess there were only eight, which is like an odd choice. But glaring fact, omission. Glaring omission. And um, No the Hollow, no crooked house. Come on. You More know like bad housekeeping, am I right? <laughs> All right, well, that is Destination Unknown. We are excited to have a proper puzzle mystery for our next novel in Hickory Dickory Dock, or I believe Hickory Dickory Death, as it is known in the U.S. But our next episode will actually be uh, two short stories. We are still working our way through the short story collection, The Labors of Hercules, and we will be covering the Augean Stables and the Stymphalian Birds. So all Poirot all the time. This is Catherine's jam here. (laughs) We would invite you to visit us on our Patreon site if you would like some additional content. We are over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is allaboutagatha and our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And we so appreciate the ratings and reviews that have come in. Please keep them coming and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.